king should come from a line of warriors, conquerors, and mighty men. But the family of that humble king in a manger was anything but heroic. Tamar was an abused widow. Rahab, a foreign sinner. Ruth, a destitute outsider. Bathsheba, an exploited wife. Yet God was not ashamed of them. He cherished these scandalous women. And at the end of this long line unfit for a king, he chose Mary. God sent his son into the world, born of a woman ordinary and unremarkable, born into a world where he continues to choose the misfits and sinners and outsiders, just like the matriarchs of Christmas. Hills. Good morning, congregation, and good morning, podgregation, or good afternoon, or whenever you're watching this thing. I hope it's good. I hope you're all getting into the Christmas spirit, uh, getting in the holiday season. I don't know if you have rituals that help you do that. I have one. Uh, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know it, because I mention it every year. Uh, it's, it's, I get in the Christmas spirit, not before uh, I watch uh, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Anyone here like Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol? Uh, anyone else here really old? Uh, it's a 1962 classic, and I, ever since I was a kid, I've watched, I just love Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. It's good to be back, back, back on Broadway. That's one of the lyrics. Winter was warm, da-da-da. Okay, I'll stop. But uh, yeah, so I'm in the Christmas spirit now, and everything's cool. So we're in this series, uh, this Christmas series, uh, the matriarchs of Christmas, looking at the five surprising women that are found in Matthew's genealogy uh, of Jesus. And uh, so last week we looked at Tamar, interesting lady, and 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 uh, what, what how she contributes to the Jesus story, because the genealogy is all about every name in the genealogy is a story that contributes to the overall story. That is, uh, this is us. That's what the ancient genealogies did. They identified you. And, and so uh, we looked at, at Tamar and saw that, that one of the things that, why she's in there is because with the coming of Jesus, and this is the meaning of Christmas, uh, is, is about uh, uh, restoring the, the, the place of women, completely revolutionizing uh, the role of women, bringing about this egalitarian uh, society and, and, and having both reflect the image of God. So that was last week. If you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, this morning, I want to look at Rahab, and um, oh, she's, a, she's an interesting person. Uh, I'll read this part of uh, the story of, of, of Rahab from the book of Joshua, but first I need to set it up a little bit, all right? So the Israelites believe that God has told them to go and slaughter everyone in Jericho. You know, you grew up with that song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. And, and, and so they are, are, are they're encamped all around Jericho and are ready to, they have a siege going on. And the people inside of Jericho are freaking out. Um, this is a town of about 2,000, they estimate, which was in the ancient world, a pretty, pretty big city. Uh, and, and they're freaking out. The Israelites sent some spies into Jericho to kind of check out the place. And this was really common in ancient Near Eastern warfare. You want to go in and find out, you know, where, where are the vulnerable spots? Uh, where are the places where they get their water? Because you might want to uh, uh, block that to starve them out. Um, and, and you just get a lay of the land. And so the, the, the spies that go into Jericho, um, 
And of course, this is also a time when there's an enemy all around you. You're looking for spies because you know that they send spies. So people's eyes are open. So these spies end up, two of them, and they end up at, at, at the house of Rahab, this prostitute's house. She's identified as a prostitute. And um, we're not told how they ended up there, but I don't think it was because they were feeling frisky. Uh, they, they ended up at her house because, um, and it tells us this in the text, her house was, was part of the outer wall of Jericho. And the outer wall was, was you know, the uh, most accessible and the least protected. Uh, this would have been the red light district of Jericho. Uh, the red light district, these people are literally on the margins of society. They're in the outermost part of the city. Uh, the, the, most, the place where they have the least protection and where they're first going to get attacked because the prostitutes are the most dispensable people in society. And so we'll use them as a buffer between us and the army. So they, it was easily accessible. Uh, it was part of the outer wall. And on top of that, um, she's a prostitute, and they advertise. And, and it, so it's customary to see guys coming and going from her house. And so they're hoping that they could that'd be kind of camouflage. They could sneak into there and get cover under her, her house without anyone noticing because the Jewish spies are going to look a little different than the Canaanites. Well, they sneak in there, and um, unfortunately someone does notice, and word gets back to the king. So the king comes, and, and, and by king, think more like a mayor than a king. This is a town of 2,000. But the king comes and confronts Rahab. and says, I hear that you have spies in your house. And, and Rahab, she, uh, she says, well, I did have two, two strange strangers come in last night. You know, it's part of uh, my business. Uh, but, but they left. Just, just recently, they left, and they went that way. And she sends them on a wild goose chase. And she's doing this to protect them, obviously. Because she wants to make a deal. She wants to make a deal. And so she comes to the spies and she says this. And they now know that she has uh, protected them. She's going to explain why. She says, we heard how God dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you left Egypt. We heard what he did to the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you put under a holy curse and destroyed. We heard it and our hearts sank. We all had the wind knocked out of us, and all because of you, you and God, your God, God of the heavens above and God of the earth below. Now promise me by God, by that God, the God I now believe in, she's saying, I showed you mercy, now show my family mercy. And give me some tangible proof, a guarantee of life for my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and everyone else connected with my family, nieces and nephews. Save our souls from death. They say, our lives for yours. They agree to this. But don't tell anyone our business. And when God turns this land over to us, that's what they believe is going to happen here, we'll do right by you in, in, in loyal mercy. All right, so the lady says, we, we, you know, we heard all about the exploits of your God, and we're terrified. And see, in the ancient Near East, what you need to know about this is that uh, terror is the language of the gods. It's the main thing the gods are for. They, they, they terrorize you. Uh, in fact, in the ancient Near East, throughout the ancient Near East, and this is true of the Bible, um, you believe that you're worshiping God by crediting him with violence. And the more macabre, the grosser the violence, the more exalted they view the deity as being. It's almost like a contest. Whose God is more ferocious? Our God will not only slay your warriors, they'll drink your blood and dance on your bones and all the rest. And you find some of that going on in the Old Testament. And in their eyes, they're worshiping God. Our God's more violent than your God. 
And so she's saying, your God's the most violent at all. Now, of course, God's not like that. Not the true God. We learn what the true God's like in the person of Jesus Christ. And here we find that this is a God who loves enemies and, 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 and doesn't engage in violence and commands us not to engage in violence. But see, the true God, because God is love, God doesn't operate by coercion. God isn't going to come down and just lobotomize their brains, just alter their brains, coercively change their brains so that they think true thoughts. Love doesn't do that. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love, love's not controlling, love's not manipulative. Love always respects the personhood of the other. And so God it will always influence people as far as possible in the direction of truth. But because he's non-coercive, there's a point where he just has to stop and honor the, the, the personhood of the person uh, that, that he's, he's dealing with and accept them as they are. With all their false beliefs and all their false habits and all the rest, he accepts them as they are in order to continue to influence them. He accommodates their fallen state. Uh, their ignorance, and, 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 and we're going to keep on influencing them, even though that it's going to make him appear in Scripture the way they think about him, not the way he actually is. He lets them tell the story from their perspective. And so we need to know that when we come upon these, I mean, the portrait of God in this story is, is really abysmal because the portrait says that God, depicts God as saying, I want everything that breathes to be slaughtered in Jericho. Man, men, women, children, infants, even the animals, it's all got to go. And they are to do it as an act of worship. We're talking about a very primitive, violent view of God here. What reveals God to us in all this is that God's not above staying with these people. Even though they think this about him, he'll stoop this low out of covenantal faithfulness with them in order to work with them as they are, even though it makes them look bad. So Rahab here is saying, which is why, by the way, we should get our bearings about what God is like, not from a story like this, uh, but rather from the person of Jesus Christ. They had a cloudy picture of God in the past, it says in Hebrews 1, but now we have the sun shining, S-U-N and S-O-N, the sun is shining on a cloudless day when Jesus Christ comes uh, to, to earth, praise God. So Rahab says, your God's more terrifying than our God, and so I want to hook my wagon up to your train. Uh, I, I want to go to your side. I want to believe in your God and become part of your people. And the result of all that is that we find this in the genealogy of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, that um, she ends up marrying this guy named Selman, who was the father of Boaz. And so Selman, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and on and on to become to Jesus Christ. Rahab, this prostitute, ends up finding herself in the, the who's who of Jesus' genealogy. One of the important stories to tell when it comes to remembering Jesus. So what does this Rahab story tell us about Jesus? Why, how does her story contribute to the meaning of, of Christmas, to the meaning of Jesus coming into this world? So last week we mentioned how it is shocking. By ancient standards, shocking that Matthew has five women in this genealogy. Because the genealogy is not meant to be an exhaustive list at all. It's meant to be a list of the important stories to tell that are part of the overall story of this is us. Um, and, and in the ancient world, as I noted last week, the important folks were always the men. Women were regarded as being less important than men, having less value than men, less human than men, and all the rest go and hear the message. So that is shocking. But what's maybe even a little more shocking is that not only are there five women, but three of these women aren't Jewish. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, the ones that are being slaughtered here in this story. Um, and she's the only one that gets to be spared. And Ruth, 
and we may talk about this next week, I don't know, but, but Ruth was a Moabite. And, and so here's Israel, the Canaanites, are, the Canaanites are on one side, their enemies, and the Moabites on the other side, and their enemies, and out of both these enemies comes descendants of Jesus. That says something about how Jesus is going to t- transcend racism and tribalism and nationalism. We'll get into more of that ne- next week, maybe. But perhaps, in fact, not perhaps, I think certainly the most shocking thing of all is that we have Rahab in here, and she's not only a woman and not only a uh, Moabite or a Canaanite, but she's a prostitute. Now, Tamar was, was, was interesting last week because she played the role of a prostitute one time, and that was scandalous. And she played the role of a prostitute that one time so she wouldn't have to be being a prostitute the rest of her life, which is what she was facing. But here we have Rahab, and she was by trade, by profession, a prostitute, and yet she's in the, the story of the who's who that leads to, to Jesus. What does this tell us about the coming of Jesus? What you need to know about this is that prostitutes were, and have almost always been, in every culture, the bottom of the social ladder, and that is certainly the, 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 the case with, with, with Jesus. They're at the bottom, the most despised people, the, the, most, the, the, the ones who are judged the most harshly, the stained the most. They're, they're, it's a profession that has the most amount of shame associated with it. And as I noted last week, it almost always comes about because you've been disowned. If you have any other option in the ancient world and you're a woman, you, you'll do that as opposed to becoming a prostitute. This is an act of desperation. Uh, in the ancient world, to not be associated with some man is the most dangerous place to be. You need to be under the care of a father or a husband because the whole culture is set up to make women depend on men. And if you don't have the, the protection of a father or a, uh, a husband or at least the brothers of the husband or something like that, well, then you're not the property of anybody, which means you're the property of whoever will pay to make you their property for a little bit of time. Uh, these are social pariahs. Uh, the prostitute, all decent people stayed away from them. Uh, these are the women that you don't want to make eye contact with. You never talk with them. You never interact with them. If you do know them, you'll never admit it. The only friend that a prostitute would have is other prostitutes. And so the inclusion in Matthew's genealogy is absolutely shocking. Um, and, and what it's telling us is that, that the, the coming of Jesus sees it, it's good news for prostitutes. And so the meaning of Christmas is associated with the good news for prostitutes. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, it's not good news for prostitution, I'm not saying that, but it's good news for prostitutes and all who are the most judged in society, the most looked down on, the most disdained, all who everyone else feeds off because they feel superior to them. It's good news for the bottom feeders, the people that are at the, the losing end of the judgment game that the world is always playing. And see, this, this is, Jesus lives this out in his ministry, and it's one of the most shocking, offensive aspects of Jesus' ministry. It's, it's, we're told several times in the Gospels that Jesus, as a matter of practice, went to dinner parties with prostitutes and with tax collectors and others who were the worst of sinners. I mean, tax collectors were the ones who, they ripped off their own people. Uh, they worked for the Roman government. They are Jews who worked for the Roman government and ripped, made a living ripping off their own people. So tax collectors and prostitutes are, are right at the bottom. And Jesus gravitates towards these folks. He goes to dinner parties with them. And what you need to know is that in the ancient world, to dine with somebody was a way of saying, um, you know, these are my people. This is my tribe. This is my family. And Jesus is doing this with the worst of sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. And it enraged people. I mean, the, 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 the religious mucking, they're much more appalled by this. 
Because it is pretty shocking behavior. I mean, if you put it in a first century Jewish context, it's really shocking that this rabbi, who's supposed to be a holy man of God, is hanging out with, having fun with, going to parties with, prostitutes and tax collectors. It'd be, I bet, surprising today if I were to suddenly decide to hang out with a local band of prostitutes and we go to parties and concerts together and, and go out dancing or whatever. I bet it would raise a few eyebrows. Pastor Boyd's out there, you know, because birds of a feather flock together. You can tell a person's character by the company they keep, right? Well, in the first century context, this was just so explosive. They were appalled. And so they, they accused Jesus of being a playboy. He, he's a womanizer. He's a drunkard. You know, he, he spread those rumors all around because they believe that birds of a feather flock together. Real holy men never would associate with the likes of these, wouldn't make eye contact with the likes of these, would never acknowledge the existence of the likes of these, but here Jesus is making friends with all of them. Uh, It's shocking in the first century context that Jesus would call the prostitutes his people. These are my peeps. But it's also surprising and really interesting and I think beautiful that the prostitutes wanted to call Jesus their people, uh, that they wanted to hang out with him. This holy man, this rabbi, the prostitutes want to hang out with him. Why? I mean, they, they stared a million miles clear of the Pharisees. Okay? They never want to be around the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other religious authorities because they judge these, these prostitutes, and no one likes to be judged. They look down on them. They disdain them. So they're not going to hang out with them. But why do they want to hang out with Jesus? And the only answer can be because he didn't judge them. He didn't judge them. They knew that he wouldn't be a fan of their trade. But what they experienced from him was not an opinion about their trade. What they experienced from him was love. What they experienced from him was a sense of worth. Here's a guy who doesn't look at me with, 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 with sex on his mind. Here's a guy who looks at me. He sees me. He sees my face. He's a person who, who respects me, gives me dignity. I bet they felt more human around him. Uh, they just wanted to be with him, and they had fun with it. And it was a powerful force. We have a story in Luke 7 where there's this prostitute who crashes a Pharisee's party. You talk about walking into the lion's den. She crashes a Pharisee's party as this prostitute just to say thank you to Jesus. And she starts crying and washing his feet with her tears and anointing his feet with this, 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 this perfume, which was one of the tools of the trade for a prostitute. If you could smell good in the ancient world, man, you had a lot going for you. Uh, this is before they had deodorant and all the rest. Don't get me going on that track. But anyways, so she anoints his feet with that. And, and of course, the Pharisees are outraged. This is scandalous. This is going to ruin our reputation. What if someone saw her come into this party? You know, we got to get her out of right now. And they're just judging her and judging her. But Jesus looks on her with his eyes of compassion and, and starts to compliment her and then contrasts her with, with, with Simon, who's hosting the party. And Simon, you've been rude to me since I got here. But this lady, she loves. And she loves because she's forgiven. He who uh, is being forgiven much, loves much. And so he honors her and holds her up as an example of, 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 of love in contrast to Simon. It outraged them. And this is the kind of thing that got Jesus crucified. And it seems like he did that quite frequently. At one point he gives this teaching in Matthew 21. He says that, he says, truly I tell you, this means listen to this, listen up, this is, this is real. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Whoa. You've got to realize that the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and that's who he's talking to right now. These are the heroes of the day. These are, you know, for religious folks, these are the Billy Grahams. You look up to these folks. These, these, these are the good guys. And the prostitutes are at the bottom. And here comes Jesus saying, oh, wrong way. The prostitutes and the tax collectors are going into heaven before 
you guys, you Pharisees and Sadducees. Because um, I haven't come to, for the healthy, I've come for the sick. And whereas you guys think you're healthy, uh, they know that they're sick, and I've come for them. Uh, the worst sickness there is is somebody who's really, really sick but doesn't know it. They think they're healthy. Actually, we're all sick. We're all broken. That's part of the message that Jesus brings us here. But the ones who know that and acknowledge that and feel that need are closer to the kingdom of heaven than those who think that they're perfectly healthy on their own. And what Jesus is doing here, folks, is he's just blowing everything up. We have this picture of Jesus as this meek and mild, you know, always gentle, kind of, he's always Gandhi, you know, just walking around. And he is gentle and mild and meek and all that, yes, but he was also a chaos bringer. When he got around religious folks, he brought chaos. Because he's right here blowing up their whole, their whole ethical system, their whole ranking system. You know, in every culture, we have a, a judgment scale by which we rate some people high and other people low. And religious folks feed off of that. It's, just, it's what the whole thing's all about. So he's blowing up their judgments. He's blowing up their rating system. Rating on the basis of how good you are, how many good deeds have you done, how many bad deeds have you done. Uh, ratings on the basis of whether you're male or female, whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish. What your social class is, what your economy is, what have you accomplished in your life. There's all these ways that we rate people and size them up. Jesus is blowing the whole thing sky high. Blowing the fundamental aspect of their religion sky high. Just blowing it all up. Just turning it all on its head. You think, you think these Pharisees that look so good on the outside and Sadducees, they, they look so good, they do all the right deeds. They make sure that you notice that too. When they pray, people notice. When they give, people notice. You all applaud that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm telling you, and he says this to them. And when Jesus talks to run-of-the-mill sinners, he's nothing but compassion and kindness. But when he talks to religious folks, he gets big because he, he loves them and he wants to free them and they won't listen to the language of love. They see that as weakness, so he's got to get big. He goes, you brood of vipers. Yeah, you're, all, you're, you're, you're like whitewashed tombs. They're so nice on the outside, but inside there's death because inside there's no love. You don't have the love of God or the love of people there, and that's the only thing that matters. These, these prostitutes and tax collectors who have lost in this judgment world system, they're hungry for something else, and that's what has come to bring. So you think that you're so close, and they're the ones who are far, but I'm telling you, they are close, and you are far. You, you, you present yourselves to be holy and righteous and all this other kind of stuff, and that they're the worst of sinners, but I'm telling you, yeah, they're sinners, but they have a hunger that is pure and good that you lack. And so Jesus comes and says, you guys who are convinced you're first, some of you are going to find out that you're last. And those that you thought were going to be last, well, they're going to be first. And, and those folks that you think are outsiders, and, and you're an insider. Us insiders, we know the truth, and we do the, those outsiders are lost. You know, you know, those outsiders are going to be on the inside, and many who are on the inside are going to find themselves on the outside. He turns the whole thing upside down, blows it sky high. He blows up this religious game that religion's been feeding on from time immemorial, where you form a kind of a holy club, but we are the folks who, uh, yeah, we're not perfect perhaps, but, but, but our sins are minor. You minimize your own sin, and you maximize everyone else's sin. Love to do it. And why? Because it's because it makes you feel good. However bad we may be, at least we're not like those despicable people. And so we set up a rating system by which we are at the top. It's funny how we always do that when you have a rating system. So we, the criteria for greatness is me, and everything else is going to be great, judged accordingly. Jesus takes this where you... You really feed off of people. It's a serious sin where you, you look at someone and, and you compare and contrast yourself with them and you're in the positive light. It's a serious sin, this judgmentalism, because it's the original sin of the Bible. It's, it's, it's what's meant by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and we get addicted to it. And, and it, it, it's so serious, it's the original sin because it's the opposite of love. The Bible defines love by pointing us to the cross, right? 
Uh, this is what love looks like. 1 John 3.16. And then defines love by, by the person of Jesus Christ. And that's about, God ascribes worth to us. He says, here's what you are worth to me. And, and, and he does it by, at cost to himself. He shows us what we're worth by what he's willing to sacrifice for us. And what we're worth is apparently is everything. That's what love does. Judgment does the opposite. Instead of ascribing worth to somebody at cost to yourself, you ascribe worth to yourself at cost to another. You're ripping off a piece of their worth to apply it to yourself. Uh, religion makes people parasites. You, you, we feed off of the worth of others instead of getting our own worth from what God thinks about us. So Jesus, to free us from this, he says, do the opposite. Do the exact opposite of what religion always tends to do. He says this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. If you don't want to be judged, here's the key, don't judge others. He says, for the judgment you make, you will be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. It's true of all sin in the Bible that it, it, it brings about its own punishment. It boomerangs back on us. God doesn't have to inflict you with anything. We do it ourselves. And so if you're living in a judgment mode, listen up. All of us who are inclined to gossip about people in our head, and we are all inclined to gossip about people in our head, it's just that we do it so frequently that we don't even notice we're doing it. So we've got to wake up to this. But with the judgment we give is the judgment we're going to get. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. If you're judging others, that judgment's going to come back on you. And then he says this. He says, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? I love this. What he's giving here is, a, he's giving us here a mindset. Uh, he's saying, look, at, rather than minimizing your sin and maximizing everyone else's, minimize everyone else's and maximize your own. I don't think people would get nearly as bothered by Christians who are always trying to pass laws against sinners if they would just do it on their own sin instead of everyone else's. <laughs> Somebody say amen. Uh, it, it, maximize your own. And, and, and so whatever you think you see in somebody else's eye, whatever imperfection, whatever fault, whatever sin that you disagree with, fine, but that's a speck compared to the log that's in your own eye. Now, I don't know how many specks of dust there are in a log, but I'm guessing, let's say, a trillion. So he's saying, whatever you think you see in another, whatever it is, he doesn't, he doesn't make exceptions here, whatever it is, however grievous it is, maybe by social standards it's really, really bad, still, to you, it's a dust particle compared, and your sin's a trillion times worse than that. Now he's speaking hyperbolically here, uh, and he's not trying to get us to feel bad about ourselves or to beat ourselves up or any of that kind of stuff. What he's saying is just be humble. Be humble. And see, if, 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 if Christians did this to any degree— uh, I think we'd be known as the humblest people on, on the planet. You know, those Christians. You know, everyone else judges people, and they put people in categories, and they stereotype people, and they try to get their way over other people. But those Christians, those Jesus followers, they just love people. That's all they ever do. They just don't want to judge. They love them. The worst of sinners, they just embrace them as though they're best friends. Wouldn't it be great if that was the reputation? <laughs> oh, man, we got a ways to go on that one, I'm afraid. But see, the kingdom's all about this. We're all broken. And we're to be the community that admits that we are all broken, but we are all perfectly loved as broken, and no one's got any business or interest trying to argue about whose brokenness is worse than whose. It doesn't matter at all. We're all recipients of God's grace. That is the kingdom of God. Jesus came to bring about that reality. And the meaning of Christmas, therefore, is wrapped up in this whole thing of the end of judgment. Uh, all Rahabs are welcome here because the judgments have ceased. There are, there are no, no best of or worst of. No, we're, the, the playing field has been leveled. Uh, the cross exposes us all as being uh, fallen, and yet all of us are perfectly loved in our fallen condition. So the reason Rahab 
is, is in this genealogy. It's because Christmas is supposed to be the good news to the worst of sinners, amen? Christmas is, is, is the end of the rating system. Christmas brings an end to the whole accusatory system. Because the whole accusatory system, this whole rating system, ultimately, is not of God. It's of the devil. And that's why Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that, that when, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, everything that was written against us, and the us, us here is all-inclusive, everything that the enemy had on us, everything we've ever done wrong, everything that could ever condemn us and shame us was nailed to the cross as well. And by being nailed to the cross, it was obliterated, obliterated and destroyed. And that, that's the victory that God won on the cross. The judgment game has been brought to an end, praise God. And, and it's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, that um, God is not, because of Jesus, God's not holding anyone's sin against them. But rather, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he's given to us, his ambassadors, those who, who say yes to him, the, the, the commission to be announcing this good news. God's not holding your sin against you. That's, that's the message that we are to proclaim. I don't know where churches got the opposite message. A lot of churches think that it's their job to be telling people, God is holding your sin against you. Not against me, but against you. Uh, but the message is to be that, no, it's, it's, the cross has changed everything for everyone. The only remaining question then is this. Will you receive it? Will you accept that? Will you say yes to this? Uh, the forgiveness is already there. The question is, will you be reconciled to God by saying yes to this? And, and then join the community of those, and this is, Jesus came into this world to birth this community, the community of those who know that they're broken uh, and know that their loved is broken and have no interest in trying to argue about whose brokenness is more broken than who. Uh, that is the meaning of Christmas. We all need people who know us good enough to know when things are going wrong, and we've given permission to speak into our life. We need that. We all need a set of eyes on us. But we always teach around here that if someone has not invited you to offer your opinions about them, um, then you're only allowed one opinion about them, and that's the one thing you know about them, which is that they were worth Jesus dying for. And so as a disciple, your job is to agree with God about that. Uh, whatever you think you see is a dust particle, set it aside and just agree with God that they have unsurpassable worth, and then reflect that worth by praying for them, blessing them, by how you interact with them, by how you think about them. That, folks, is the kingdom of God. Christmas brings an end to judgment, which opens up the doorway for all of us to be part of the community of God. Amen. So that's the first reason why Rahab, I think, is in this genealogy. There's a second reason, I think. Uh, this is, I, I never saw this before. Uh, and now that I see it, I, I think it's the most beautiful part of the story. It starts with a puzzle. The puzzle is this. Uh, as I shared last week, earlier in this message, Prostitution wasn't something that a woman would choose if she had any other options. And it always happened because you were disowned. You, you, you don't have, you're not, you're, not, you're not owned by a man, whether it's your father or a husband or brothers or something of the sort. So you're on your own, therefore you become the property of all people. Yet Rahab has a family, a big family. Father and mother and brothers and sisters um, and, 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 and there's others, nieces and nephews, which begs the question, then what is she doing prostituting? Why isn't she with her family? Why isn't she with her sisters? Um, why, why aren't they providing for her? Why is this unmarried woman living out here on the margins of society in the red light district while the families live in someplace else in some respectable neighborhood? Who knows? But something happened here. What, what, what went wrong here? In talking with Paul about this, he, Paul Eddy, my bro, covenant bro, and 
he pointed out that you know, you're dealing here in, in ancient Canaan with a shame-honor shame kind of culture. Being honored and being shamed are really, really big deals. And there's only one way that a daughter could find herself on the outside of the family, on her own, and having to prostitute just to survive. And that would be if she brought some kind of shame on the fi family. And it would have to be a pretty big kind of shame. And as is true in the Old Testament, you find throughout the ancient Near East that the, the main, really the only way that women can be regarded as being shameful is, is if they do something sexually inappropriate. Uh, so I noted last week that how you know, prostitutes are punished, in a, they're supposed to be punished in ancient Israel, not because there's anything, they believe that anything intrinsically wrong with the, with, with the, the woman, but because she brought shame on the father. In the case of a, of a, a priest, if a priest had a daughter who turned to prostitution, the punishment was death by fire because she brought great shame on this honor, this, this man who's supposed to be honored. And so it seems like Rahab here must have done something that was just scandalous that caused the father, and the father had the authority to do this, to say to the rest of the family, she is dead to us. You don't have a sister named Rahab anymore. She's cut off. And it could have been just having sex before marriage might have been enough. But the, the, we read in Leviticus that there's a number of things uh, that are considered sexually inappropriate and scandalous and shameful that could lead a father to cut off his daughter or even order that she be put to death. He had the authority to do that. And so she's kicked out of the family. Um, and the minute you begin to consider this, we don't know what it was, but something brought shame on the family and they disown her. And with that knowledge in the background, now let's go back and look at what she says to the spies. She comes back after having covered for these spies, and she says to them, now, look, look, now promise me by God, I showed you mercy. Listen to this. Now show my family mercy. And give me some tangible proof, a guarantee of life for my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and everyone connected with my family. Save our souls from death. I find it just amazing. She doesn't even first say, hey, save me and also my family. The first thing out of her mouth is, my family is here. Now, I don't know how long she'd been disowned by them. Let's just pick a number, three, four years. But here's this fa family that she hasn't seen for four years. Four years with not being invited to Christmas or birthday parties or any holiday, any kind of get-together. Uh, this family that won't make eye contact with her, considers her a social pariah, won't even acknowledge her existence. She says, well, you saved my family. My father, who, who wouldn't forgive me, cast me out and condemn me to this life of prostitution, I still love him. I still got a father and a mom, and I want to see him again. And, I, and what she's saying here is that she forgives this. She forgives this. She wants them to be together. My older sister, my younger sister, we used to play. I haven't seen them for four years, but how I'd love to see them again. And so she pleads for her life. And, and this is a big ask. This would up the likelihood that the spies would say, no, you know what? Forget it. Thanks for, for doing that for us, but that's too much work. It's way easier to spare a single prostitute than it is to spare a whole clan. They're going in to wipe out everybody, but the spies agree to it. And, and we don't know how the story went on from there. We're not told, but I can't imagine this family continuing to hold this terrible stance towards her after she saved their life. I have to believe that reconciliation took place there uh, and that the family was restored. Uh, what we do know is that as they were now become part of Israel, um, Rahab was restored. Uh, she no longer prostitutes. 
So apparently she no longer needs to prostitute. That signifies that there's been some restoration that's going on with the family. Beyond that, she not only stops prostituting, but she loses the, the, the stigma of being a prostitute because she marries this upstanding Jewish guy, Selman. And that's what gets her into the who's who of Jesus' story, uh, identity story. Uh, it, it, it's, it, she forgave. So another reason why I think Rahab is part of this genealogy here is that not only does she represent the end of judgment and the rating system, but she embodies beautiful forgiveness. And she herself had received forgiveness and had been restored. Um, it's, 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 she's part of that, that, that lineage of Jesus because she manifests this radical forgiveness that Jesus came to bring. The coming of Jesus, and this is the meaning of Christmas, is that the floodgates of God's mercy have been opened. The floodgates of forgiveness has been opened. He's not holding anyone's sin against them. All that could separate us from God has been removed. That's why Jesus came to, to get rid of all that, to say, will you just accept this love, enter into this love, be transformed by this love, become part of this community of love. It's forgiveness. We, we've been forgiven an infinite debt from God for every wrong that we've done, and now we are called and empowered to forgive others the same way. It's part of living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. To live in love is to live in forgiveness and to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Forgiveness, forgiveness is just about releasing a debt. Uh, when someone wrongs you, it's like they, 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 they put themselves in debt. They did something that they shouldn't have done. And, and we hang on to that because it's a way of saying, I'm worth more than the way you treated me. And that's our anger. And it's understandable. But see, that anger, however understandable it is, you did this to me. You wronged me. How could you have for four years rejected me like this? Or whatever the thing may be. Uh, when we hang on to it, it starts to eat us alive. It's not good for us to hang on to. It's a normal emotion, but it's got to be released. So the Apostle Paul tells us in, in, in Ephesians 4, he says, when you're angry, make sure you don't sin. So getting angry isn't itself a sin. But when you're angry, what you got angry about might be sinful. Maybe it's trivial and whatever. But the fact that you have this emotion, that's just, that's just human. But don't sin with it. And he says, you sin with it if you go to bed with it. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And he uses this word there that literally means bitterness. Your anger turns to bitterness when you swallow it, when you sleep on it, when it becomes part of who you are. And he says, that's how you give the devil a foothold. There's a spiritual force of evil out in this world, and it looks for opportunities to start doing us in, and a great opportunity is created the minute we refuse to forgive. It's so important that we release. There's been so much, there's been a ton of research that shows how hanging on to unforgiveness is bad for us physically, psychologically, and spiritually. So part of the meaning of Christmas that Rahab shows us is that it's about forgiveness that comes to us, and that's supposed to flow out of us. So I want to end with this question. Uh, who hurt you? As we're heading into this Christmas season, which we now know is part of the meaning of this, the central part of it is, is about forgiveness. Ask the question, who hurt you? Who, who wounded you? Holy Spirit, just bring to mind whoever we're supposed to be brought to mind now for everyone watching this. And just be attentive. What, what, what takes place in your imagination when I ask that question? Who hurt you? Who wounded you? Who betrayed you? Where, do you, where are you still holding on to anger towards someone? And when you have that face in front of you and you're thinking about this person or maybe it's these people, maybe more than one, I wonder if you can and, and ask God to help you do this. However long you've been hanging on to this, will you let it go?
but you let it go. It might be a person that you thought you had already let go. What I find in my life is that I, I, I forgive, but, but it can happen that I find out two years later that I'm, I'm angry at him again. And so it's a process. you got to just release it again. And every time you find yourself ruminating on that and getting mad about that, release it again. Can you release this person? Just turn them over to God. Whatever justice needs to happen, whatever punishment needs to happen, God will take care of that. That's God's business. The Bible says leave all vengeance to God. Don't carry on any vengeance on your own. No retaliation on your own. Be free of that, 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 that emotion. Can you release this person to God? And maybe you can, can you just see yourself doing this? Now, it doesn't mean, you're gonna, it doesn't mean that you're going to want to go out camping with them and sing Kumbaya with them. It doesn't mean that, that, that what they did to you wasn't serious. Maybe what they did to you was absolutely unthinkably bad. And everyone in the world would understand why you'd hang out anger your whole life. It'd be understandable, but it wouldn't be good for you. And it certainly wouldn't be godly. It destroys us, however justified it is. Can you release that person to God? And then, having, this, however you represent it, see yourself surrendering this person to God. And however you feel about it, it doesn't matter. Just see yourself doing this. Make that decision. I release this person. I'm not going to be a debt collector. And then, can you agree with God? And this might be hard for some folks if you've never done it towards this person that you've, this is the people that, the person that you love to hate, perhaps. But can you agree with God that that person has unsurpassable worth? and bless them as a person who's got unsurpassable worth. What they did maybe was heinous. Maybe they're, 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 their character's terrible. Maybe you'd never trust them with anything, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus died for them, and your first job as a disciple is to agree with God about that with everybody, including this person. And so can you just start to bless them? And at first it might be like pulling teeth. It might really hurt. I, I'm talking from experience here. Lord, just bless that person. Who did that to me? Lord, well, bless them in Jesus' name. They have unsurpassable worth. But as you obey, as you obey, you see, you're, 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 going in, you're getting into a groove, and God will help you with this. And, and, and you'll find that as you continue with this, it gets easier. And, and in time, you might even begin to see what God sees in the worth of the other person. And then the final thing I'll just say is this. After you've blessed the person, and you've turned, you've, you've released them to God, uh, invite Jesus into that wound that that person created. And I just encourage you to, in, in your mind's eye, imagination, the, the, ask the Holy Spirit to kind of show you what it looks like when, when you introduce Jesus into the situation to bring about healing in your life. So you, that, that wound there is healed. And that's part of what empowers us to no longer be trying to collect debt. It's healed now. Rahab received the healing because she received the forgiveness and she gave the forgiveness. We are called this Christmas in 2021 to do the same. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, I just thank you for being the forgiving God that you are. I thank you, God, for being a God who destroys human judgments in our rating systems and the way that we file and rank people and, and all the rest. Lord God, thank you for setting us free to be real people who are just honest about our brokenness, who receive your love and who grow in your love. Uh, Lord, thank you for, for, for forgiving us and empowering us to forgive others. I pray, Lord, that everybody hearing this message uh, this weekend or whenever they hear it, would be set free from whatever unforgiveness they've been harboring in their heart. Free them from this, Lord, to be a people who would walk around not collecting debts, but who dance in your love and reflect your glory to all people at all times and all situations. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Quick announcements. Uh, don't forget, we have on Tuesdays the newscast. 
we're going to go a little deeper into the, the message. Uh, that's uh, Tuesday at 4 o'clock. We have gathering groups. We encourage people to be, get involved in those. And they also talk about uh, sermons and a number of other things. Uh, if you're going to be here next week, make sure that you tell us so that uh, if you have kids and you want them in the children's church, uh, we need to know ahead of time to schedule people there. And is there one more? Uh, Oh, yes, in this prayer, uh, if, you're, if you're part of the congregation, they'll be up front. If you're part of the congregation, you can get online and get prayer for that. And finally, go out and have yourselves a merry two weeks before Christmas. And I'll see you back here next week. God bless. Take care.